Well, here we are in Nehemiah. We're in chapters 3 and 4. And in terms of the story, the building of the city has begun. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, God's people, they've gone to the Promised Land, they were exiled, and they've come, begun, begun to come back. And at this point, they're rebuilding the city. They've come back and it's not been good. Nehemiah, though, has gathered them together and a new effort has begun to rebuild the city. Now, there are plenty of jokes about how difficult it is to get a building project done. Now, whether it's a, a DIY, uh, whether you've uh, worked out your own home renovations, councils turn building plans into political issues and neighbours complain, it's hard to get a decent plumber, and who checked the references on Bobby? He obviously was working on Opal Tower or Mascot Towers, we're not sure. Nothing seems to have changed since the time of Nehemiah. Here he is trying to rebuild the wars around Jerusalem. And it's a giant DIY project. All of God's people are gathered together and involved in this new effort. And that's what we see in chapter 3. Here in chapter 3, he pushes forward. He's come up with a plan, a secret plan, which is now getting opposition. And we'll come to the enemies in a moment. But he pushes forward. In chapter 3, we begin to see how God's people begin this rebuilding process. It's like a roll call of the names of all those who've returned from exile in Jerusalem. I'll just get you to turn your turn the page back to Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, you'll see it there on the bottom of page 468. You'll see why I didn't get Liz to read this. You know, like this is, chapter 3 is the kind of chapter that if you're on Bible reading that day, you kind of cry or, you know, you wake up with cold sweats or something like that. So Liz, I, didn't, I wasn't going to make you do chapter 3 as well. But just have a look with me what it's like. Because we read here, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate, and they dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the table, a tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hanul. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zacchaeus, son of Imri, built next to him. And you'll see on that map, kind of behind me on the screen, um, how extensive the building works were. Um, Pity the poor people who had to work on the dung gate, and, you know, we get to them at verse 13. But as you, as you read through, um, you begin to see how Nehemiah's plan to construct or reconstruct this temple were coming together. Uh, verse 3, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. Alex Jobnat reckons that the fish gate was probably just as smelly as the dung gate. So I'm sure the sheep gate wasn't much better either. They laid its beams and its doors and its bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. And next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshbel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made the repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Deshana Gate was repaired by the Joyada, son of Paseah, Meshulam. You get the picture of what chapter 3 is. And if you just sort of cast your eye down, you'll see why I didn't get Liz to read all of that, but I want to give you a sense because it's actually really important for us to see. This is God's word. And here we see individuals that God has rescued and brought just like he does today, right? He cares about people and shows the authenticity of these were the people. If you actually were there, you would have seen them and met them and you would have seen them all hands on deck. It's a long list of Hebrew names, but it shows how well organized and how things were divided up. They're all strongly motivated to repair the city with the notable exception of the nobles of Tekoa in verse 5. And it's this rich diversity, this rich tapestry of God's people who are rebuilding rulers and priests and sons and daughters and tradespeople and perfumers and goldsmiths. It's a picture of the national group cooperating in a very powerful way for the greater good. If only God's people had always acted like this. 
But they hadn't. They'd gone into exile and now they return. But the work has begun. And chapter 3 really summarises the rebuilding process as it begins. And so then we come to chapter 4. Just turn over to 470. Because here we meet the drama that accompanied the work. See, it is so often easy to begin well. With good intentions, you start well. Now, if you are a DIY project person like me, that's what you do. You know, you get excited, you come up with a plan. Of course, you go down to Bunnings, you get all the stuff that you need and you start. And then you realise it's going to take a lot longer than you originally thought. And then a few weeks later, Alice will say, well, you know, what's happening with that thing? Very gently, she's very kind to me. And a few weeks later and a few weeks later and then eventually something gets done. You know, it's easy to begin well. It's harder to persevere and keep going and to finish well. And we feel that as a church, don't we? One of the big things we're encouraging this year, our whole year we're thinking about how can we be equipped to serve as God's people together. Hence one of the reasons we're doing Nehemiah because we see see what that looked like. But we've been introducing the word one to one. We began the year by running a training session for all the churches. I organised a training session for all the churches in our local area. We got a great group along and the guy who put the material together, Richard Borgon, and took us through that. And it was a group of us who went to that. And we were keen and enthused and we prayed and we got to know the material. I got Tony Wright to come here and he preached on John 1 and he introduced us to the material. He came to our weekend away and shared some more and we got to try it out. Now, not everyone um, has a copy of this or maybe you've lost your copy Or maybe you've kind of forgotten about it. Maybe you had good intentions. Yes, there's that person I want to share the Bible with. But then life gets busy and we forget. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten. Um, We're going to take this whole year to keep encouraging you to give it a go. Because for me, the word one-to-one gives us an opportunity to bring the Bible to our friends in a really fresh and easy way. I mean, for a start, it's just the Bible. And so it doesn't get any simpler than that. And if you can turn a page then you've done the training session, so well done. It's very easy. It takes a little bit of practice just the first time because you can feel a little awkward. Uh, And so I encourage you, if you haven't got it or if you've lost yours or whatever, I've got some copies down the back. This is book one. Feel free to take those. There's a few copies of book two and there's some book three and then there's a a pack. Um, And you can order your own from then on. I leave it in your hands. This is a really a DIY thing uh, where you can have the opportunity to pray for your friends. But it's not just praying, you know, Nehemiah prayed for four months, you know, taking the time to pray is really big, but then having the courage to actually ask them. Now, I've, I've tried to give you a few lines, you know, uh, ask a friend, we like to go for a coffee and read the Bible, that's an easy one. But the other one is, you know, Matt, our minister at church, you know, he's given us this word one and he really wants us to try it with a friend and I'm, I'm looking for someone, would you please come and have a coffee with me and get him off my back? No. Would you please come and have a coffee with me and we can try it out and you can let me know how it goes. I'm still meeting with a friend of mine, Craig, and it's been terrific. And I just want to commend it to you to keep praying, have the boldness to to have a go. I'd love by the end of the year that every single person here has tried it with someone else. And if you can't think of a friend or a colleague or a neighbour, ask someone else in the congregate. Ask Pat Wigan, she'll do it with you. Um, ask, (laughs) Ask someone and uh, see how you go. Sorry, Pat, I didn't mean to put you in it, but you know what I mean. Find someone. I'm sure you can. It's easy to be a bit like the parable of the sower. You know, the responses to the parable of the sower, those who, you know, it just washes over the first time, or those who you get excited and then it busyness and worries, you know, choke. But we know when the word, when the seed of God, when the word of God, the seed is sown in good soil, 
it bears fruit a hundred times. So I want to encourage you to keep going with our building project. Nehemiah chapter 4 shows us what happened when God's people got got opposition. It's the enemies and the opposition who rise up. Sanballat. And I want to say to you, I think lurking behind all these enemies, we're meant to see spiritual warfare. As God works his purposes out, Satan, whose name means the adversary, who is the father of lies and works, always works to oppose God's people and the building of God's kingdom. And he hates God and he hates God's people because they want to do God's work in the world. I think we see that happening here. But don't panic, of course, as Christians, we know Christ has come. He has overcome. He's defeated the enemy. And so he calls on us as Christians now to put on the full armour of God as we stand firm in Jesus. As we recognise the gracious hand of God in the world and as we trust in the victory that Christ has won. And we pray as Nehemiah does, as the battles form, as the enemies arise. And here those enemies have a name. They're Sanballat, they're Tobiah and Geshem. Uh, But we have our own enemies, don't we? Comfort and laziness and uh, busyness and, and all sorts of things. We have opponents. They take every opportunity, just like Nehemiah's enemies, to discredit, to mock and ridicule Christians, to make false accusations, to undermine and to pour public scorn on the efforts of Christians. So let's see what happens. First one, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was on his side, said, what are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it. He'd break down their walls of stones. Well, it certainly sounds like the media, as they spoke about the Wallabies before they played last night. (laughs) It wasn't that good to win. Hey, We see uh, this truth, though, in terms of free speech, uh, religious freedoms, the abortion debate in schools, in business, in government. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you will have seen it in personal relationships and challenges that rise up. The challenge to the status quo as opponents rise up. We see it in denominations and churches who pour cold cold water on new ideas, who mock and ridicule visionary leaders. And uh, you see loyalty to institutions rather than to the God of the Bible and to biblical truth. And my big question to you today is why does it hurt so much? Why does opposition hurt us so much? And I think three things. Firstly, it destroys morale. See, mockery and contempt are like jabs to our morale. Nehemiah has generated this new enthusiasm. He's got God's people. He's got them organised. And the enemy sow seeds of doubt. And uh, he realised, Nehemiah realised, that the, the uh, morale of his people was fragile. And he himself wasn't immune to their barbs, so he turns to God in prayer. Verse 4. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And so we rebuilt the wall. And so they went on. And his prayer is basically saying, A, is a plea for God's support for his own servants, asking God to counter the enemies with words, with strength, with confidence. And secondly, B, it's a plea for God's judgment on his enemies. Now, it's not vindictiveness. It's a zeal for God's honour, for God's kingdom. Uh, you get the same thing all through, throughout the Psalms. The psalmists 
cry out to God for justice in unjust situations. And sometimes we can feel a bit uncomfortable with a prayer like that. Sometimes we want to see the good in everybody. And we know Jesus says, love your enemies. But sometimes it's just our spiritual wussiness. We either desire and pray for God's kingdom to come or we don't. Now, of course, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you, says Jesus. And so our prayers should express the desire for God's mercy. But Jesus spoke about this matter-of-factly. He spoke about the need to banish evil, to pray for God's kingdom to come. See, did Nehemiah pray for the conversion of his enemies? Well, perhaps not, but perhaps he should have. But because his enemies are opposing God, he prays that God will overcome. and, And we see that happen there in verse 6. The second reason it hurts so much is the physical threats are dangerous, particularly at that time. Now, we in Australia don't face threats of physical persecution, but there are many Christians around the world who do. And the enemies surround the walls in verse 8. Have a look there. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the labourers is giving out and there's so much rubble we cannot rebuild the wall. And also our enemies said, before they know us or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. The, the, The physical threat is very real for them. They're surrounded by overwhelming forces. Their resistance is waning. They're scared. I think sometimes you hear declarations that the church is in decline and nothing can be done to move things forward. And sometimes that can alarm us particularly when we see with sadness uh, the rise of secularism and, and some of the decisions that are made in our world and we see what is happening. But as it was in the days of Nehemiah, so it remains today. Nehemiah is really the practical embodiment of William Carey's catchphrase, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. See, Nehemiah knew he had the backing of King Artaxerxes. It was unlikely the enemies were going to come and, you know, with an all-out full frontal assault. But he knew that guerrilla warfare was likely. And that, and that, as Christians, is what we face. And he knew that that would be incredibly morale-sapping for God's people. So what was Nehemiah to do? Well, he was wise. He dealt with the threat and he builds up the esteem of his people. See, what does he do? Well, he turns Jerusalem, you know, that, that city that walls that we saw before, and turns it into an armed camp. Half the people are protecting, half are building. A sword in one hand, a trowel in the other. And he's constantly sharing his trust and confidence in God. Verse 14. Remember, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And verse 20. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. And through it all, he's praying. Verse 9. But we prayed to our God. We posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And all the while, he builds loyalty and solidarity and sets the example himself. Verse 23. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. We'll see more of that next week. The third reason opposition hurts so much is personal discouragement. See, by halving the number of builders to set up an arms guard and with each builder having to wear a sword, the people are struggling. They're weighed down. They begin to grumble. Verse 10, we saw that. And their discouragement drains away the whole enterprise and diminishes the effort it generates an apathy and inertia and a hopelessness that's normally what happens when i do diy projects Um, but for these people it's because of the real threats and it's a problem for nehemiah but it can be our problem as christians too you know church we talk about the fact that we're on a rescue boat we want to see people come to know 
Jesus, to be saved. We're not on a cruise ship just enjoying the good times and the fellowship and the great music and the programs and all the things that God has blessed us with in this church. No, we need to move beyond maintenance. We need to keep working at extending God's kingdom personally and corporately. Together, we each have a role to play. And again and again, we come, we come up with challenges, whether that be tiredness and comfort or comfort, unbelief, laziness, busyness, cynicism, self-absorption, sitting on the fence. And the Apostle Paul faced the same thing when he wrote to the churches, didn't he? There was immaturity, there was immorality. And he told us what we need to do. Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith. Which you can, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And not just Paul, Jesus. He despaired at the spiritual dullness of his disciples, didn't he? But he taught them how to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so they found like Nehemiah, the strength to keep going. And how did they do that? Well, the secret strength is there right before us in verse 14. Remember the Lord. It's the key verse of this section, verse 14. Remember the Lord. That's what you do when you put on the armour of God because he is the great and he is the awesome God. You get strength in your knowledge that God is good. You get strength in your knowledge that God loves you, that Jesus came to die for you. And he's gone away to prepare a place for you. And he's coming back to bring you home to be with him forever. We have a God who is faithful to his promises. And when you focus, when you apply that to the situation that stands before you, and you ask God for wisdom, as you remember the Lord, by the grace of God, he gives you strength. And the work of God goes on. Let's keep applying this to ourselves. What, what do you think are going to be the challenges for us as a church going forward as we, as we want to make disciples, as we want to connect, grow, serve and share? Uh, I think it's been great to see the way God has blessed us and here on a Sunday to see the encouragement and the children and the families here together. But we want to, we want to build that so that we can see not only a happy place here, but we want to build our outreach into our community. We want to see new initiatives and I'm so encouraged when we see different people taking those opportunities up. And maybe you can think, well, what's my gate that we're gonna, I'm going to work on? Maybe not the dung gate. We'll leave that. See who can work on that. Someone has to take the rubbish out on a Tuesday. But there, we each have a role to play. What is it that you can do in God's kingdom? He's given us all gifts to serve, hasn't he? And these are great chapters in Nehemiah. I, I love this book. It's profoundly true that the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls was the work of God. I can tell you right now that the people in Kalara, they don't need St. Martin's, they don't need Matt Hazelwood. They need Jesus. And he's given us to help them to know that. And in the face of 
opposition, of taunts, of provocation, of physical assaults. The Israelites managed not only to construct the wall, but to fight off the enemy. A hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And that's like us too. And Nehemiah makes it clear that it's God who's behind them every step of the way, protecting them, fighting for them, remaining faithful to his promises day by day. And without God on their side, Jerusalem would have been lost. But what he's done is he's taken this ragged bunch of exiles, a conquered mob, and through them rebuilt their home. And so they need to remember the Lord, the great and awesome God. I thought the best way to finish was to share with you the way King David spoke about this. And he puts the thoughts of the heart so vividly in Psalm 27. So I want to ask you to close your eyes as I read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in straight paths because of my oppressors. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord.